In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we'll be continuing our series on the documents of the Second Vatican Council. In particular, we'll focus on the document on the liturgy, the second half of that document. So please enjoy this episode. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. This episode, we're going to be continuing our series on Vatican II, and in particular, we're focusing on the document on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which was the first document promulgated by the Second Vatican Council, and it was promulgated in the fall of 1963. In our first episode on the liturgy document, we talked basically about chapter one. The uh, entire document runs um, just a little over 100 paragraphs long. And in the first document, or the first episode, rather, we talked about basically the first 46 paragraphs. Uh, The first chapter of the document is the longest section by far. Um, so just to, to recap uh, what we're what we're going to be focusing on here in this episode is in particular the directives on the mass. We'll talk a little bit about sacraments and sacramentals, the divine office or the liturgy of the hours, and maybe we'll have some comments on the liturgical year, sacred music, and then sacred art and furnishings. Uh, if you didn't see the first episode, it lays out what the way the council document does, the general principles for restoration and promotion of the liturgy. And there's one really critical paragraph in the first part of the document, which we discussed last time, that I just want to draw our attention back to. And it's uh, paragraph number 22, which basically says that any of the things that are going to change in the liturgy, in any of the liturgies, and remember liturgy has a very broad term, is a very broad term, has a very broad meaning. It's not just uh, the Mass, it also refers to other sacraments, to even sacramentals, to the Divine Office, so it's a very wide category. Any changes in anything in the liturgy that are going to happen as a result of the Council, paragraph 22 says need to be done um, with the appropriate authorities. Um, so the, the ecclesiastical structure has to approve of any of the changes that are being suggested, and priests on their own are not given free reign to just kind of do whatever they want. Um, so that's that's something that, as you read, if you are reading through the document on your own, what you'll see constantly in the later chapters of the document is it'll say something about changing, updating, renovating, something like that, a particular part of the liturgy. Maybe that's the Eucharist, maybe it's the Divine Office. And then it will say, but this has to be done in accordance with the precepts laid out in paragraph 22. So that's why I bring that out, um, is because if you're going to actually do the work, which I encourage you to do, of reading the entire document, you'll keep seeing that reference back to 22, 
And I don't know how many people um, on their own are going to flip back and see what that reference is, but that's that's what it is. So we're going to start with talking about, in particular, the changes that are gonna, that are recommended in Sacrosanctum Concilium with respect to the liturgy of the Mass. Uh, one of the things that's, I think, important uh, is that even the language it's used to describe the Mass in this document gives a sense that the Council here is trying to help us see the Mass in a, in a wider form. And, and here's what I mean by that. It's, it's easy for people to say, uh, for Catholics to talk about the Eucharist, and think that when we say the Eucharist, it, it just means bread which has now been consecrated and has become the body and blood of Christ. And of course, that is true to say that that is the Eucharist. But the Second Vatican Council, in the second chapter here of the document on the liturgy, says that it is going to discuss the sacred mystery of the Eucharist. And what they're what they're doing is they're calling the entire Mass the Eucharist. So the Eucharist actually means the entire liturgy of the Mass and not just the consecration or the consecrated host, but really it's the Paschal mystery that we celebrate, that we participate in from the beginning of the liturgy all the way to the end. Um, and that mystery language, the mystery of the Eucharist, um, is the way that the Council refers to what most people will call the Mass. And so the, the Fathers of the Council, then, they're trying to emphasize that the whole Mass, which includes the Liturgy of the Word, the homily, the prayers of the faithful, all of that is the mystery of the Eucharist. And the Council wants all Catholics to be fully present and aware of everything that's going on throughout the whole liturgy of the Eucharist, and not just at the consecration. So one of the realities that the Council is dealing with in its approach to the liturgy is that since the Council of Trent and up until the 20th century, there had been such um, emphasis placed on the reality of the Eucharist, which is obviously a very good thing, uh, but it was also born out of a particular context that you know, the, the Council of Trent was responding to the Protestant Reformation, which in, in many ways rejected the doctrine um, that we believe about the Eucharist. And so there was there was concern to make sure that Catholics really understood that, like, at the moment of consecration, something is happening. The bread is becoming the body, the wine is becoming the blood, and we call this transubstantiation. So that's an important doctrine for sure. But it became easy for Catholics to attend the Mass, to attend the liturgy, and to get a little bit, uh, or maybe not too focused on that, I don't, want to mean, I don't want to say that, but to be so focused on the central consecration that sort of the rest of the liturgy is, is just kind of lost, and it's not giving, been given the due attention that it deserves, and there's not this notion of participation throughout the whole liturgy, throughout the whole mystery of the Eucharist, it's been reduced to sort of just this one moment. So the Council Fathers use this language that they want people who are attending, who are, who are at the liturgy, at the Eucharist to pray, they want them to be more than just silent spectators. They don't want the faithful at Mass to merely be silent spectators attending a consecration, but rather to be participating and even giving themselves, offering themselves, offering their, their own hearts along with the priest throughout the entire liturgy. There is um, concern 
in this discussion about the mystery of the Eucharist for the different parts of the Mass to be more clearly understood and for the link between the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, um, or the Eucharistic prayer, to be more obvious and more understood. Um, and so because that's the desire, the Council Fathers uh, explain that they want a simplification of the rites. Uh, they want to remove anything that has sort of there's been some accretions over time that have just kind of been added in, duplications, and also to restore some ancient liturgical practices. So one of the liturgical practices that's being restored is precisely the prayers of the faithful, which were absent um, in the Mass uh, celebrated from the Council of Trent up until Vatican II, but which were certainly part of the, the Church's heritage um, prior to the Council of Trent. Uh, there's also that, that that really that link between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, I think, is a really, really, really critical point of the renovation of the liturgy that happens at Vatican II. And there's there's a couple of ways in which this happens. One is the readings from the scriptures from the Bible are supposed to be more uh, wide, more broad, more varied, uh, and and that's going to need mean we're, we'll need a new lectionary. So there was a much smaller lectionary. Vatican II explicitly calls for a multi-year lectionary where we read from a much wider range of the scriptures. And that happens in two ways. If you've been to um, just a, a Latin Mass, uh, you'll see one reading, a psalm, a gospel. Now in the uh, Mass celebrated since the Vatican, Second Vatican Council, we've got two readings and a psalm and then a gospel. So it's, it's, a, wide, it's a broader range of scriptures that are being read, and part of the reason why that makes that possible is there are more readings happening, uh, but also there's, in most cases on Sundays, especially on Sundays, a really, really clear typological link between the Old Testament or the first reading, which is typically going to be from the Old Testament, and the gospel, and that is supposed to show us the unity of salvation history and also show us how, in some ways, everything is moving in salvation history toward the Paschal mystery, which we re-celebrate at the, the, at the prayers of the Eucharist, right? When we receive the Eucharist, when, when the priest is offering the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood, that's the pinnacle of salvation history being recapitulated. We are re-presenting that one mystery, that one sacrifice of Christ. A part of the Council's concern for helping the faithful see this is to broaden the readings, but also to really put an emphasis for priests on the importance of the Sunday homily and other major feasts. Um, so the, the, the document says that priests are obligated to preach a sermon, especially on Sunday Masses and on other important feasts, and it can only be omitted with serious reasons. Now, one of the big changes that happens to the liturgy, and really, I mean, this is one of the big, biggest things that impacted all Catholics after the Second Vatican Council, uh, is the changes to the liturgy broadly, but especially um, the use of vernacular. So I do want to read um, from paragraph 54 in Sacrosanctum Concilium to kind of indicate to you the way that the Council expresses its concern for the use of Latin and its permission for the use of the vernacular. And we'll, of course, there's, there's a lot you could say, but just, just to get it out into the conversation, this is paragraph 54. In masses which are celebrated with the people, so not in private masses, a suitable place may be allotted to their mother tongue. This is to apply in the first place to the readings 
and the common prayer, which would be the prayers of the faithful, but also, as local conditions may warrant, to those parts which, parts which pertain to the people, according to the norm laid down in Article 36 of this Constitution. Nevertheless, steps should be taken so that the faithful may also be able to say or to sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. So that would be things like the Gloria, the Creed, the Agnus Dei, or the Lamb of God, the, the Our Father, or the Pater Noster. Um, those parts of the Mass which every time you go, they're the same. They don't change. So it, the Council does say people ought to be able to say or sing those parts. Um, and then it continues, wherever a more extended use of the mother tongue within the Mass appears desirable, the regulation laid down in Article 40 of this Constitution is to be observed. So after the Council, you're going to see a wide use of the vernacular, much broader than this narrow prescription here. Um, and that's that's one of the things certainly to, to you know be aware of is that that's not necessarily exactly what the council called for. Uh, nevertheless, the council does say you could have a wider use of the vernacular if you know property authorities are involved, and of course, eventually they are. At the same time, I do think we can we could admit uh, that the idea that everybody ought to be able to say the Latin parts of the ordinary mass is probably not a very common experience today. Um, but that's the way that it is, you know, d discussed within the, the document itself. Um, one more thing about the Mass, and then we'll move on to some of these other liturgical areas that the, that the uh, document discusses. In paragraph 55, there is a note about the faithful being able to receive both the body and the blood at communion. And this is a, a, a very new development at Vatican II. Um, prior, you know, from Trent onward, it was, you know, the, the, the host would be received by the faithful uh, and not the, uh, not the blood. However, it's interesting, uh, you know, especially as an American, having grown up in the, in the church in America, almost every Mass I went to for, for so much of my life until COVID, there was the host, uh, you know, the, the body and the blood was available for communion. In the, the document, there is a note that we should be able to offer people communion under both species. However, it's a, another, another limit. So it gives examples of times when people should be able to receive the blood. And it says, for instance, someone who is, you know, a religious and they just said their vows, let them receive the blood that day. To the newly baptized right, on the mass of their baptism, so like at the Easter vigil. And I think that's something really important to remember, that it, it, it wasn't imagined as something that would always take place. And as the church, especially, I mean, really throughout the world, is moving past COVID, thanks be to God, uh, there is a, there's another discussion about how are we going to approach the reception of the blood by the faithful? I mean, should it be at every mass? Vatican II, says it should be on special days. So something important to consider. Now, as I said, liturgy is a really broad term. Sacraments, all of the sacraments are considered liturgy and even sacramentals. And what you see, uh, if you understand chapter one really, really well and chapter two on the Mass or the mystery of the Eucharist, you'll see basically a similar format in each section where the Council discusses, for instance, in chapter three, the sacraments, all seven sacraments, 
that they can be better understood by the faithful who are receiving them. So there is a consequent discussion then of the use of the vernacular and a clarification that any use of the vernacular needs to be limited and needs to follow the conditions in Sacrosanctum Concilium number 22. The development over time is that, you know, now you receive the sacraments almost exclusively in the vernacular, but that wasn't necessarily crystal clear in 1963. However, you know, between 1963 and 1970, the use of the vernacular was given permission by all of the people that needed to approve of it. Um, so you see this this beginning of the development here in the document um, for, for all of the sacraments. So, you know, going to confession and hearing the priest speak English when he, when he gives you the, the prayer of absolution uh, or, you know, any other sacrament. There's actually a really interesting discussion about the rite of matrimony and how that needs to be updated. Um, but in addition to this, this general conversation about we want all the rites to be simplified— so that people can understand them better. And we want to at least admit for the use of the vernacular so that, again, there can be greater participation and understanding. In addition to that, there is a discussion about renewing the catechumenate. So to bring, uh, to baptize an adult, uh, this process of the catechumenate is being recovered from the ancient church. So you could look, for instance, at the catechetical lectures of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, that give us an indication of how adults were prepared for baptism in the early church. There is a catechetical component to it. This was present in the church in the 1950s and 1960s. Priests oftentimes would offer sort of their own formation for an adult who needed to be baptized. Or if you want to bring uh, a Protestant into the church, there was basically sort of an, an improvised ad hoc approach to that. What the council calls for is a return to the catechumenate, which includes, of course, that catechetical you know, teaching component, but also brings in a mystagogical and liturgical component to it. So this is one of the things that really has changed the church a lot since the 1960s. We call it RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, or OCIA, uh, which is going to be the new title when the new text is printed, the Order of Christian Initiation for Adults. So this is something that is discussed in Chapter 3 about the sacraments and sacramentals, meaning that we need to, uh, or indicating that we need a renewal of how to prepare, particularly adults, for baptism. And with regard to baptism, all of the sacraments, as I said, are discussed, but in the, in the discussion about baptism in particular, it says that the rite needs to make it more clear to the parents and the godparents what their responsibility is. And that means that it's, that it's not merely just to have brought the kid for the baptism. That's obviously a good start, but it's a, it's a responsibility that continues. And if you've looked closely at, at the rite of baptism, you'll see that is very clear in the language now. And of course, the use of the vernacular is, is a part of, of making sure that that reality is understood. The next major thing that the document um, discusses is the Liturgy of the Hours, or the Divine Office. And in the, re in the revision of the Divine Office, the Council Fathers talk about it as what we see at St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians. He says that Christians need to pray ceaselessly. So for us to really engage in that process as a church, to pray without ceasing, the Liturgy of the Hours or the Divine Office is the way that we do that. This is the prayers that priests and religious pray at fixed times throughout the day. This, is, this has gone on for centuries, 
in uh, the Second Vatican Council, there's a discussion about trying to renew that in some way. But there's also a beautiful theology of what precisely the divine office is. And I really like this description. So the Council Fathers describe the divine office as a way of sanctifying our whole day with prayer. And they even call the divine office the very prayer which Christ himself, together with his body, addresses to the Father. And so all of the people who pray the divine office, and it's not just those who are required to, lay people can do this as well, there are clerics, uh, there are nuns, monks, brothers, seminarians, anyone who's doing this should understand themselves as uniting themselves with Christ in his prayer to the Heavenly Father, which I think is just a really beautiful way of describing it. There are some updates and some changes that are noted. Uh, Matins is to be said with fewer psalms and longer readings, and it can be celebrated at any any hour of the day, and I, and I believe that's what today we call the Office of Readings. Uh, and there's a real big emphasis on lauds, or morning prayer, and vespers, or evening prayer, as these are like the two principal or main hours of prayer. They must be prayed in the morning and in the evening, and not just like you sit down at once and just knock it all out. There's a, there's a constant emphasis throughout the discussion of the divine office that those who are obligated to pray it especially need to do it with serious reverence and according to a fixed schedule in which it's going to interrupt their day. There is, you know, has throughout history been a temptation for anyone who's required to, to recite the divine office to say, well, if I can just sit down and just do it all at once, at least I said the prayers. And, and the Second Vatican Council is using its authority as an ecumenical council to say that's not how it's supposed to be. It is supposed to be praying ceaselessly, interrupting your day at the morning, in the middle of the day, in the evening, at night, uh, through, all throughout the day, stopping what you're doing to pray. And part of the concern here is that the you know, there aren't as many people that are going to be able to wake up in the middle of the night and do some of the hours. So they, they make the, the concession that um, some of the hours can be celebrated at, at any, any point of the day, um, and that, you know, Compline will be understood to be the last hour of prayer of a day, so that there's, you know, not, not as much of an obligation or a question about doing, you know, a vigil prayer at, at 3 a.m. or something like that. Um, and so to, to accommodate that reality— and also to assure that the priests or, or uh, religious or anyone who's praying this prayer continues to pray all of the psalms, the council says that the psalms should be distributed instead of just in one week over a broader period of time. Um, so it's it's sort of the, the, the case that if you're praying the liturgy hours prior to the council, I mean, you were just really hammering out the psalms, the whole Psalter, every week. Uh, but also, you know, it was in Latin— it was a little bit more cumbersome in some ways, and maybe, and I don't know this, as I obviously I never did it, but it may have been a little bit more difficult to really enter into a deep prayer um, with the way it was structured and with the language. And so there's there's this discussion of using the vernacular where possible, but trying to maintain Latin where possible as well, and simplifying uh, the the structure of it, but still assuring that the psalms are being read on a more, uh, completely read through, but more slowly. Um, so I, I myself have been lucky at various points in my life to to pray the Liturgy of the Hours for, for a couple of years at a time when I was in the seminary, or other times where I'm actually sticking with it for a few months. And I, I can personally say that when, when you get the chance to do that for 
a, you know, a few months and you really take your time and go through all the Psalms and then you, you make it back to the beginning, you're in week one again and you're going through the same Psalms, it really is a powerful prayer. And there is a clear desire in the document here on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, for all of the faithful wherever possible to engage in the prayer, especially of morning and evening prayer. And there are calls for priests, for pastors, to give their parishes an opportunity in community to pray the Liturgy of the Hours. There's also very interesting specific directives of monks and nuns who are in choir. They have a little bit more a little bit less flexibility and adaptability. Uh, they're they're going to be required to do things a little bit more strictly as a witness, right, to the, to the origins of this prayer, which I think is just really, really fantastic. But, but one of the things that, that often goes overlooked is that in the document on the liturgy, the council invites the laity to engage in this prayer, and particularly in morning and evening prayer. So if you've if you're a Catholic, you're listening to this, or even if you're not Catholic, uh, which would be really cool if you're listening to this, uh, trying morning and evening prayer, I really think, is a very, very, very good suggestion for you. And it's one of the other ways in which the Council shows us the importance of the broad use of Scripture. So in the discussion of renewing or renovating the Liturgy of the Hours, the Divine Office, there is supposed to be a richer selection from Scripture. So this this Concern for access to the Bible for broader use of the Scriptures, you're going to see run all throughout these four major documents in, in different and varied ways. It's one of the very, very consistent themes of Vatican II, is this concern for Scripture. Okay, there's uh, a couple more things that are discussed, really three more chapters. Um, there's the one on the liturgical year, and that's just chapter 5 is on the, the liturgical year, and it essentially makes the point that the sacrifices, the, the, the not the sacrifices necessarily, but the celebrations of the life of Christ, which mark the liturgical year as a whole. So going from Advent, where we celebrate Christ's birth, all the way through, well, at Christmas we celebrate Christ's birth, right? Advent prepares for the expectation of the Messiah. We receive the Messiah, his, we celebrate his birth at Christmas. We go forward, and in by the time we get to Lent, we're, we're celebrating his passion, death, and resurrection at at Easter, and then we have you know the, the the period after Easter, following up to Pentecost. That that cycle, the the council wants to make sure is the clear and dominant focus of the liturgical calendar. And so there's a desire to simplify that a little bit, to take some feasts which were celebrated universally and say that's that doesn't need to be a universal feast. What does need to be a universal feast is, you know, Pentecost and these other days. Not that they weren't, but that, that we want to put greater emphasis on the mysteries of Christ's life and sort of the grand reenactment of Christ's life, which is what the liturgical season, the, litur the liturgical year is meant to mark out. And I actually had a music history professor um, when I was studying music at Florida State as an undergraduate who opened his discussion about actually Catholic mass music, which we were studying, by saying that, you know, if you really understand Catholicism at a very basic way, at least in its liturgy, you see it as a grand reenactment of the life of Christ. And he had this just really beautiful way of seeing that, and it was in a music history classroom, something I never expected to hear. Uh, the same sort of point here is being made by the council, that the church's calendar can be a little bit more simplified to make that clear. Uh, and there's, there is a discussion about Lent, and um, not as much changes 
in the text of this document with the practice of Lent as you would, would go on in, in practice to see. But one thing I do want to point out, this document on the liturgy says that the Lenten season is about two things. It's about penance, I think everybody knows that, and it's about baptism. It's about preparing for the renewal of baptism or preparing for baptism, depending on your, if you're, you know, if you're already Catholic or if you're uh, preparing to be baptized, and penance. And both of those things need to be brought out well. Um, so that's just something that I found really interesting in this uh, read-through as I prepared for the podcast. Um, lastly, two more, just two more things. There's a discussion about sacred music and sacred art. And the discussion about sacred music, you have a, a mirror image of the discussion about the use of Latin or the vernacular in the Mass and the other sacraments. And there's a clear desire that Latin should be retained, that all things being equal, Gregorian chant should have the pride of place. Uh, there's a, a, a line about the importance of the pipe organ, and also a recognition that a pipe organ is not always going to be possible, right? In mission territories in particular, there's going to be different kinds of music, that, that different cultural music, and that the church needs to sort of recognize the distinct, the distinct artistic forms of each culture. You see this in the discussion of music and sacred art, sacred music and sacred art. Different cultures have their different arts, and that can be brought in, but it needs to be done, you guessed it, carefully, slowly, with discernment. Um, and there's also, I really do like in the discussion about sacred music, the idea that, you know, we want to try and retain Latin, we want to try and retain Gregorian chant, but we also need to make sure that people can sing along with and they know what they're doing. So the melodies can be in a true, it can be in Latin, it can be a true chant with a simplified melody so that, you know, you don't need a trained professional choir to have music at the liturgy. Uh, and so that the people who were there to participate in the Mass can actually give their voices to the singing of the divine praises that happens um, through chant or whatever other kind of music. Um, but it's just it's something that you, you recognize throughout the document as clear concern for taking our time, for being careful, being open to changes, uh, but also trying to retain, you know, a certain patrimony. And so there's a, there's a really good balance uh, between saying we need to open up some new avenues for, you know, making the liturgy more accessible, but also maintain our traditions as they had been. And the same kind of thing is discussed with regard to sacred art, furnishings, construction of churches. In every case, there's a clear notion that we need to, you know, talk about the use, or, or rather, following the proper, you know, ecclesiastical authorities. So uh, that's, uh, you know, pretty basic overview in, in two episodes of what does the document on the liturgy from Vatican II say. Um, I hope you have enjoyed this. I really hope you're getting a lot out of these series. Please leave comments if you have any questions um, or, or just comments about, you know, the content of the, the document, the presentations that we've given. Uh, we'll, we're following those and, and we'll engage with them as we can, you know, going forward. So uh, that concludes this episode. I thank you and uh, wish you the best. God bless.